Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Mike Sakopoulos and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. We hear it all the time. Insurance companies make practicing medicine terrible. They dictate patient care and lacquer billing requirements on at an ever-increasing pace. You've all heard the complaints before. Interaction with third-party payers is often cited as a leading cause for physician burnout. But what to do? In the words of Theodore Roosevelt, it is not the critic that counts. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena. We're about to meet that man. Next on Sound Practice. My guest today is Dr. Rob Lamberts. Dr. Lamberts is board certified in both internal medicine and pediatrics. For the past decade, he has been involved in the direct primary care model of practice. Dr. Lambert has been practicing in the Augusta, Georgia area for nearly three decades. Dr. Rob Lamberts, welcome to Sound Practice. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's my pleasure. Some years ago, you stopped accepting insurance third-party payments for patient care. How did this come about? Yeah, I consider September 30th, uh, 2012 as my sobriety date, my date where I stopped taking money from insurance companies. Um, I had been practicing, so actually I'm almost 10 years sober, which is which is wonderful. Um, I, I have been practicing regular primary care, fee-for-service primary care, was founder of a practice here in Augusta that started in 94 um, and had been doing it for about 18 years um, and more and more was getting burned out, more and more was getting frustrated. And I kept resisting the 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 dichotomy between what was motivated by the payment model and what was motivated by what I felt was the right thing to do. The payment model said, spend less time with your people, spend more time with your computer, spend more time focused on coding and, and submission of data and less time on, on problem solving. Um, you know, the, the business of medicine became less and less about actually caring for patients and my my idea. So so from a business standpoint, the other docs that I was with were wanting to run the business well, which meant, in my view, um, running away from what was what I went into medicine for. Um, and so uh, we had a parting of ways um, and I actually didn't 100% know what I was going to do. Um, I was writing a lot at that point in time. I had a medical blog that was was popular at that point in time. And, and uh, some of what I was writing was about my journey of dealing with primary care and such. And, and I actually got in contact with a guy named Dave Chase, Dave Chase out of Northwest, the Seattle area. And Dave had worked with uh, insurance, the insurance side of things and got delusioned by all of that and had come in contact with Garrison Bliss, Erica Bliss, and the whole, the very, very beginning of the direct primary care movement. 
Um, and so, you know, I was looking at different models of what I could do. Um, what was I going to do when I left my practice and just happened to be talking to Dave and he pushed me in this direction. You know, I like the the idea of going back into primary care with fee-for-service didn't appeal in the least to me. Um, I could have done VA. I could have done, um, you know, work for a hospital system. That just seemed like more of the same. Um, and then the MDVIP model seemed to be omitting the patients who I like the most, which are my elderly folks, my Medicare patients, or even my my poor, my Medic Medicaid patients, or self-insured, uh, the uninsured. Um, and, and so Dave talked to me about DPC and it just, the light went off. It was like, oh my gosh, this, this works perfectly. This fits exactly. Uh, and there were very few practices. I did speak to a couple uh, when they were first starting, but, but, you know, 10 years ago, there really weren't uh, a lot of other, uh, a lot of other doctors doing it. So I kind of had to make a lot of it up myself, but it worked. So it sounds like it was a bit of an uh, education process for yourself. Oh. Tell me about the patients. I mean, this is not a model that maybe they were familiar with at the time. How did you go about in telling patients about what you're offering? <laughs> well, uh, I was fortunate because I was one of the senior partners of the practice. So I got a lot of latitude that, that my, um, that, that a lot of doctors don't get in this type of circumstance. So I was actually able to send out a letter to all of my patients and, so, and then hold a meeting at a local church uh, where I explained what I was going to do. I wasn't going to accept insurance anymore. I wasn't going to accept payments for office visits. It was just going to be a monthly fee. Um, but it wasn't going to be a high monthly fee. And um, about 200 patients out of however many I had, probably 3,000 at that point in time, uh, 200 patients followed me, which, which, is, which was disappointing to me at the time, but I don't think I could have handled more. Mm. Uh, so I think it all worked out very well. Um, and, and it was new for them. And despite the fact that they thought I was a good doctor and they appreciated me, um, it, this idea of not doing things with insurance just felt weird for a lot of people. Um, and so, uh, you know, very few of the people who came over to me at the start have ever left. They've, they've kept with the program the whole time. But to some extent, they were following me because it was me. Um, and not because of the model. Uh, but since then, I think, you know, a lot of folks have come over. Um, well, let's, let's fast forward to, to present days with um, a pandemic. How's the direct primary care model um, dealt with COVID-19? Well, um, I mean, the one of the problems was that, that in-office volumes dropped dramatically for a lot of offices. And the system wasn't set up to deal with visits that were not in the classic, you come in the office, I spend this time with you, I code for problems and all the rest. And so the classic fee-for-service model, um, primary care doctors took an enormous hit um, and, and, you know, a lot of them that were, were, were going for the, um, 
the loans, the funding, the PPP or whatever it is uh, that came out at that point in time. Um, we saw no drop because our model says you can come into the office, but we'll handle most of our visits via text messaging or phone call or video visits. And we just shifted to all video visits for a period of time. Uh, and, and, you know, if somebody had to come in, we would, you know, have the door shut and just bring one patient in at a time. And so I still did um, in-office visits, but, you know, those first days were kind of crazy and everybody knows it was a little scary. But, you know, we honestly saw our, you know, when you have a membership model, you look at the churn rate, which is essentially how many, what percentage of your patients are leaving you each month. Um, and, and, you know, what, what we saw was that that churn rate dropped to near zero. Uh, very few patients. If you can have a doctor who um, you can reach via text message or, or, or phone call and not have to worry about a lot of the pandemic, it's almost as if DPC was set up for dealing with this. And so we didn't miss a beat and incomes went up for most direct care doctors. What percentage of your patients carry traditional health insurance? Um, you know, that's, it's, that's interesting because when I first started out, it was definitely um, heavily, you know, maybe 70% was uninsured um, when I first started. But it was interesting time because at that time, the um, that's when the Affordable Care Act, uh, you know, Obamacare came out back 10 years ago. Um, and I so I was just starting and the Affordable Care Act comes. And so then we kind of went back towards insurance and then the Affordable Care Act did about as much as it could and then it receded. Uh, and but now I would say I would say about 30 to 40% of my folks are uninsured. Most of those are small business type uh, people are, who are either employed by small businesses or who own small businesses. Um, and, uh, you know, so that number has gone back. My, my, my business partner, Ed Boland, he, he actually um, has a newer, you know, he started three years ago and, uh, he, he has more uh, uninsured folks as well. But again, it, it's not uninsured as in not working. Um, it's more uninsured in that, that um, traditional health insurance is still uh, too expensive, especially for small businesses. Do you have privileges at the local hospital? If any of your people or uh, patients are, are admitted, would you see them in a hospital setting? Um, I do not see them, but, but I will say that, that I was pretty much stopping doing that um, as of when I was in my old practice. Certainly uh, adult patients, the only patients that I would potentially see in the, in the, in the hospital admitting privilege-wise was my uh, pediatric population where I would do newborns and such. Uh, and that volume dropped so dramatically because pediatrics, truth is, Pediatrics um, is a little harder to do with direct care because um, 
Uh, I don't know. It's, I mean, actually, I think more, I'm starting to build that population back up, but initially it was like most of them had Medicaid and so they could, or, you know, if, or, or the, 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 I forget what they're called, but we have Peach Care, which is kind of a Medicaid-ish program. Uh, the program is based on Medicaid for the gap between insured and and uh, um, and poor. Um, most kids have coverage of some sort, so the need. Uh, when I was predominantly uninsured, uh, very few pediatrics patients came over, but that that number has actually been going up quite a bit um, of of pediatrics. So which which has been good. Um, the the thing is that with with people who are in the hospital, what they are realizing is that hospitalist care is so disconnected. It's a, such a different silo from the care that you get um, in in outside of the hospital that they are they are essentially um, disconnected, and and that disconnect I think creates a real quality gap. Um, that disconnect between the care that I've been giving for a patient for 10 years, and then they go into the hospital and the 10 years that I've given to this patient and have worked on these problems trying to keep them out of the hospital um, gets completely ignored by the hospitalist. Um, and so we will talk to the patients while they're in the hospital um, and give them advice and tell them what to tell their doctors or even if they go into the emergency room. Um, you know, eventually I would love to have my own hospitalists <laughs> have a big enough practice that I would be able to have my own hospitalists that understood and, and worked, saw this as a continuum of care, not as just a um, these silos of care, which I think is really harmful to people. Um, I think it, it ends up giving poorer care because it's just that it, it ignores all the rest of the things that other people have been doing. You got my vote. Uh, yep. On that, that tell me, this is a nut and bolts type of uh, question. Do you use an electronic medical record system in your office? Of course. <laughs> in fact, I was one, I, I, back in 1997, 1997 is when I started using electronic medical records. If you don't count in Indianapolis, where I actually used the electronic medical record system there from uh, 1990 to 94. So, I mean, I've been doing electronic medical records forever. But yes, we use a Elation, which is an online um, a cloud uh, system, but it it doesn't focus on billing, which is what we like. We like the fact that it's um, it's pretty much of a clinical documentation rather than a um, putting stuff ahead so that I can bill. In fact, that was actually one of my biggest challenges ten years ago because I looked at electronic medical record system and most of them were not clinically oriented they were towards because it was about enm coding and about um you know all of the the um meaningful use criteria at that point in time and the mips and the mers and all the other types of things that data that you were submitting uh and so i mean that's the product of medicine that 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 uh, healthcare is all about um and uh 
I, I hadn't, I was opted out of Medicare, so I didn't, I had no interest in any of that stuff. And so the EMR systems were terrible. Um, they were, they were just terrible clinically. Um, and I actually made my own EMR initially. That's how much a geek I am. Uh, I made my own EMR system uh, off of a, a FileMaker Pro database and and built it and it used it for about three or four years and and then finally found one that that was good enough to be able to do from a clinical standpoint. How does the the billing or collections side of the practice work? This area of medicine that you know usually monopolized by insurance companies taking premiums, right. right? And then right. paying it out to, to practices. But it, it seems to me that with hundreds of people, you may have a collection issue. I don't have a collection issue. Um, we have, uh, we use a company called Hint, um, but, but really it's a subscription model. So you just essentially say you pay us monthly um, and that's how you are able to stay a patient in the practice. Um, and one of the keys early on, I was thinking, well, maybe you do it for, if you sign up for a year, you get a discount and all the other types of stuff. What I realized is that that created way more complications than anything. And so if I have monthly, what we do is we say, look, if people are on time, you know, they're a member of the practice. That's how they renew their monthly membership. If they don't pay, They've got 30 days of grace to pay, but they'll be reminded that they're past due. If they're over 30 days, uh, then up to 60, then they're in a period of time where they're, they owe us, they have to pay us back for what they haven't paid us to get back on and we'll have a little extra fee. And then if they're over 60 days, we won't be their doctors anymore. And so it's fairly simple to control that and say, okay, you're past due, we're going to not, you know, we're not going to refill medicines. We're not going to do all the other stuff. And if somebody just makes a mistake or whatever, then we don't care. We'll, we'll just, they just pay us back and keep doing it. If you look at our 90 days accounts receivable, it's usually less than $500, uh, 90 days accounts receivable. And in fact, our 60 days, a lot of times is less than a hundred dollars. Uh, which wow. is unbelievably good for a business, but absolutely, but it's it's automatically withdrawn from their credit card or their but mm. but even and a certain amount of people will send in checks or even come in and pay cash on a regular basis or a cashier's check or whatever. Fine, whatever way doesn't really matter. But you know that's the key is that we do it by month and then people will leave a you know will will drop off and then if they have to sign up again, well you know then they have to go through the, the sign-up process again and, and you know, pay the, 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 the sign-up fee, which is a little extra. Again, we're not trying to, I mean, it's not like we're charging that much. We're charging on average, probably 50, 50 to $60 per month um, for a person. And so you, you, people would be surprised. People are like, how, well, this doesn't work well for the poor people. We have Medicaid patients. We have plenty of, in fact, I think it's, you know, if you say something's $50 a month, very few people out there can't afford $50 a month or can't scrape it together. Mm-hmm. Um, the good, But the good thing is that let's say we're taking care of a family and the, you know, the mom or dad lose a job or they, you know, they just can't pay. 
and they say, we have to stop because, you know, we can't afford it for the whole family. And we say, look, I'll tell you what, for the next, for the next three months, while you're getting your, on, on your feet again, we'll charge you 20 bucks a month. Um, and they're like, so grateful, but it, you know, it's 20, 20 more bucks than we would have gotten. <laughs> so from a business standpoint, but what we've done is we've shown to them and we don't have to apologize to an insurance company for not collecting what we should. We're not, we don't, we don't have to look over. It's our business. We can run it whatever way we want. Uh, and then people are going to be loyal in terms of, of that. Sure. So on your website, it looks as though the monthly fee is determined by the metric of, of age. Right. Are there any other metrics? Let's say I have some pre-existing condition. Would that be factored into my monthly fee? Not at all. Not at all. And, and I've, uh, there's that discussion within the direct care community of whether or not to do that. But, but I know very few who do that. If it's really usually just by age, um, and, and there, it's more economics. If the way that I look at it is this, if you, the majority of people in their twenties are not going to tolerate paying 50, $75 per month. And so really what we want to do is get these healthy people who are paying maybe $40 a month and they can tolerate that from a monthly fee standpoint. But if you raise it too high, then you're eliminating those people who are not going to utilize your services. And so you really want to find that sweet spot where you get a lot of people out there who are not utilizing you a lot, you know, maybe once a year or twice a year or whatever, and they're still paying you on a monthly basis. It's just a economic calculation that you do and you're trying to find that sweet spot. Um, we tend to run a little bit lower, but especially in the lower age brackets. And as somebody is, you know, in their sixties or seventies, they have enough health problems that they're very much wanting to have a doctor who is available to them, uh, you know, for not just for, you know, if they catch a sinus infection or whatever, but to help manage their high blood pressure order the bone densities and all the rest of those types of things. So, so it, the value proposition goes a lot. It's a lot easier for people who are in the Medicare population. One of the interesting things that your practice does is help negotiate reduced fees for services and medication. Mm -hmm. uh, how, how wide is that net? <sighs> um, it's uh, it's great. It's it's one of the most fun things to do because you know we what we do is we we from we go, first off we'll go to a lab we do negotiate the client billing price which is you know for a CBC is four dollars or for a um, you know a metabolic profile is three dollars uh, and so instead of upcharging that and you know making a profit off of that we just keep the price very close to that fee so they come in and get their labs done and their labs cost them ten dollars for a cbc lipid profile a1c and a cmp you know it's ten dollars for that <laughs> and they're like ten dollars i don't know if i can afford that <laughs> um and or and um we do can get wholesale generic medications um and so we can get blood pressure pills or cholesterol medicines for $2 a month or a dollar a month or, you know, uh, antibiotics for $2 or, you know, it's, it's 
significantly even cheaper than than most of the um, good RX prices and and such, a lot cheaper. Um, and I can save people, you know. And so the business proposition is this: I could, we could our upcharge those things, um, but there are two things that that uh, that factor in here. Number one, we're never going to make anything close to what we make on the monthly fees. And we're, I mean, the monthly fees are where everything is at. And the second thing is, and so, so it's really not worth marking it up. But the other thing is that if we have patients, I mean, I'll routinely have patients who, when they first come in, they're on like four different medicines or five different medicines. And we ask them how much they're paying a month and they're paying $60, $70 a month. And through our practice, they pay $10 a month. Well, then from their, their standpoint, it, the business proposition easy. I'm barely paying for this doctor because I'm paying $50 a month and I'm saving 40. So the net cost for me is $10 a month. And I get a doctor I can send tech messages to who I can be seen the same day almost every time who will spend a half hour with me in the office if I need to. Um, and it's, it's a win. And, and the only other thing that it's the psychology of, I just got a bargain. Um, and I don't know if there are very many circumstances within healthcare where somebody walks away feeling like they got a bargain. Um, and yet that's what we can give them that feeling that they will not get close to. Uh, most of the time you feel like you're being ripped off. And so when somebody gives you something and says, and, and I, you know, they'll say, well, what's the catch? The, well, the catch is you, you just keep paying me every month. And I'm not going to apologize for that if I, you know, uh, but I'm trying to make it worthwhile. It seems to me you're collecting money to provide future service, which may or may not be necessary. That somewhat mm -hmm. sounds like insurance to me. Are you regulated by the state of Georgia as, uh, as an insurance carrier? We are not. Uh, and that was back 10 years ago, that was a concern. Uh, and so, you know, we, we made it clear that, that, you know, we would not, um, we had to do separate little, little things saying, well, if you came in more than six times a month, then there would be a $20 fee or something like that, that would put us out of that insurance mode. Now, most states have recognized direct primary care model in say, no, it's not insurance, it is care. Um, yeah, it, it's really not it, what, what you're, what you're doing, you can say for future services. Well, yeah, maybe, or essentially people are paying for access. Access is, is the commodity that we're giving them access to me, access to my nursing staff, access to whatever they need. Um, and so, you know, somebody can text message and they, I had a, I had a family where the kid was a little bit sick and, and kind of in a, in that intermediate worrisome mode. And she texts me at um, like four o'clock on Sunday afternoon. And, you know, I'll usually look at those and most of them are like, people are just asking for medicine refills. And so we'll just wait till Monday for that. But this was one. So I asked questions and they were like, so grateful to be able to have a doctor they could text message with on a Sunday night. And that's what the monthly fee really is going towards. It's going towards having access to me, having access to, to 
to my my nursing staff, who was wonderful, uh, and and that that's what you're paying for, not not in case I need it. No, no, you have access now, um, and if you don't use it, well, that's your thing. But that's really what we're 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 charging the monthly fee for. Our time here is is closing out, but I imagine that in our audience today are a number of people that are um, contemplating what what you did. Can you maybe tell them some things to look forward to or look out for as they move into a direct primary care model of, of practice? Um, you know, ten years ago, I had to I had to basically make it up. Um, and even so much as making my own medical record system. Nowadays, there are business out there solely catering to um, direct primary care. Um, it has become a, a force, not a big one yet, but it's starting to be a movement. Um, the first thing I would say is take advantage of all the other docs that have done it. Um, there's the Direct Primary Care Alliance, DPCA. There's Hint Health, which is having a summit next week in, in Colorado that I'm going to be going to, that where they are just talking about ways and you can network with other, other clinicians who are doing it. Um, and I would say also that most of us have this philosophy that's like, it's rising tide lifts all boats. We want more DPC doctors. And so I've had folks coming through my office and seeing it working in real life. Um, but it's a good business model. It, I, this is the thing that we actually went and talked to the residents here at Augusta University. Um, the lifestyle, that, that feeling of that hamster wheel that you're on in healthcare that you seeing so many people and you just can't get off and you're, you're never going to, I just remember that feeling of burnout and despair. I, I've never seen more than 15 patients in a day. And I have a very mature, full primary direct primary care practice. And my patients feel like they're getting my full attention and they're so appreciative. I mean, the quality of care, the, the experience that I have, that my nurses have, and that my patients have is all way, way higher than the experience that you would have in a typical primary care practice. It's just better. I can give better care. Um, you know, and some would criticize, well, but you're only seeing 800 patients. And the answer is, yeah, that's true, as opposed to the 3,000 that I saw in my old practice, although that's a debatable number. But the answer is, I didn't really give them access. I didn't really give them care. And so if I'm offering really good care to 800 people or offering crappy care to 3,000 people, I think I'll take the former. Um, and my hope is that this will draw people back into primary care because primary care has been this 
you know, poorly paid compared to other practices and people go into dermatology or radiology or whatever, which I personally find really boring. Uh, why would anybody go into dermatology or radiology? Because all you're doing is one thing again and again and again, uh, as opposed to me where anything can walk in the door and I'm problem solving and I get to hold hands of people and give them hugs and build these long-term relationships. It's so much it's why I went into medicine. And so my advice is go visit direct primary care practices. There are probably some in your area. Um, and I almost guarantee you, they will be delighted to, to talk to you uh, and to help you. And, you know, we're actually starting a business with which our goal is to, in the Augusta area, to grow direct care practices throughout our area and build up a larger base of, of, of DPC uh, practitioners. And that'll give us the ability to make contracts with businesses and do all this other stuff. So the business model is growing and growing the more people that do it. But, and so I think we're all starting to think this way and saying, let's offer this wonderful practice opportunity to to practitioners coming out of residency or the 50 something docs who are totally burned out, who need something kind of like I did 10 years ago. Um, I, it's, a, it's a winner. My guest has been Dr. Lamberts. Doctor, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Good to talk. My thanks to Dr. Rob Lamberts for his time and insights, his improvement to the physician patient relationship inspires hope. My thanks also to the American Association for Physician Leadership for making this podcast possible. Please join me next time on Sound Practice. We release a new episode every other Wednesday. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. That is holy cow, that man and Robin went from Kapow.